Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Vision, expectations, goals. Go home and look in the mirror. Because if you know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, you're God's plan to engage this world. It's not a program. It's you and me. We, if, we, if we have the hope that Laura was talking about, right? We need to share that hope. Okay, now, now we're going to pray. I'm being all, very authoritative this morning because I've got a lot we want, I want us to cover. I don't want to, to miss any of this because uh, uh, it's all important. We need to pray for Doug Jardine today and for his dad who is expected to pass away today and for his family uh, and especially uh, Doug's brother Bill who does not uh, profess to have a personal relationship with the Lord, and uh, um, we, can pray, we can pray for Bill, though, and the rest of the family this morning. And I know that you're here, you didn't come here without personal stories of your own in terms of what some of your needs might be, or what uh, Laura mentioned as intercessory prayer, or interceding for others and for the brokenness in our world. But let's just, I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, it's, right now, I'm, I'm reading this clock saying 19 minutes after 11 here up here. Does that sound right? Okay, and then we're going to jump in and we're going to paddle hard because we are uh, in Exodus chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay, first let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this great uh, group of people this morning and for that privilege. What an awesome privilege it is to be here together. Uh, Lord, we are, uh, we are so privileged. Your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy, your love, your hope, your power in our lives. Uh, Lord... You are our all and all. We come to you empty-handed, Lord, and we just thank you that you were able to meet every need. And we pray this morning for, uh, for Doug Jardine, that you would strengthen him and encourage him, comfort him. We pray for his dad. We pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, just um, be revealing yourself to him and, and uh, be, be merciful, Lord, to him. We pray. And for the entire family, uh, encourage Tracy and, and the boys this morning. We pray, Lord, as they're, they're here and, and, and Doug is there with his dad and Cape Breton. And, and, uh, and Lord, we pray for Bill and any other family members, Lord, who, um, who need uh, for you to use this time, this difficult time, to show them. Um, how much they need you. Lord, we pray you would do that. And we pray your spirit would be much at work there. And we pray for others this morning, Lord. We, we know, Lord, that sometimes the needs are overwhelming. And in a, in a body like this, the needs can be overwhelming. And, um, but, Lord, you are not overwhelmed. We thank you today that we worship an all-sufficient God. And, Lord, today, may we all come to you empty-handed, knowing that you are able. Uh, Lord, we just bring before you those unspoken prayer requests that are represented here inside of this room. And we ask that your will would be done, and we pray that your name would be glorified, 
And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. <coughs> so take a deep breath. No, I'm serious. Take a deep breath. Let the, let the air fill your lungs. <coughs> God put it there, right? Um, so we're making our way through uh, the book of Exodus. I'm excited. See this? This is a commentary on the book of Exodus. Every man's Bible commentary from uh, Moody, published by Moody um, Bible Institute, uh, 1983. I think I got it, I got it new the very first time I studied through the entire book of Exodus, uh, which was around 1983. And uh, I remember those days. I remember them well. I remember how excited I was to be learning stuff and going, I never knew this. <laughs> this is amazing. This is totally amazing. And you know what? As I'm studying through Exodus this time, it's the same thing. I'm learning all kinds of things I didn't know, and I hope you are, and I trust that you will. Um, last week, we were talking some about the call of Moses, and and I have a quote here. It's from uh, uh, R. Alan Cole in his Exodus commentary on, Levitic, uh, on uh, Exodus. He says, the call and experience of Moses at the burning bush sets the pattern for all later prophetic calls. Was Moses the first prophet? Not exactly, but think about this. We attribute all five of the first five books of the Bible to Moses. That's significant, isn't it? And later on in Scripture, when the people of the New Testament time, era, talked about the Old Testament, they often referred to uh, the Old Testament as Moses and the prophets which was kind of not a way of saying Moses wasn't a prophet. Rather, it was a way of saying Moses was a prophet like no other prophet. He was, in many ways, the prototype of what it meant to be a biblical prophet. So think about that and chew on that, because this, this is momentous stuff. This is big, uh, big stuff here, right? And later on in Deuteronomy, uh, God will say to Moses, uh, someday I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. And he was talking about Jesus. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, the biblical scholars of Jesus' day at one point went to him and said, are you the prophet? Because the prophet was a, a title for the Messiah. And God said to Moses, he will be a prophet like you. That's pretty significant stuff, isn't it? Now, uh, last week at the end, I mentioned to you that Exodus 3, which is the chapter uh, where God calls Moses, and Moses is in the wilderness uh, uh, and he uh, sees the bush uh, burning uh, there, and, and he has this encounter with God. And as he, as, as he starts to go and have a look, it gets his attention. He starts to go and have a look. God says, take off your, your sandals uh, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Remember that? I mentioned, and I mentioned towards the end of, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Oh, thank you very much, honey. Was that you? Or was that somebody else? Was that you, Jalen? Florence, did you give this water? I hope it's safe to drink. <laughs> thank you. Whoever gave me this water, thank you, because I'm still having some issues with my throat. Um, yeah, the first time the word holiness, the first time the word holy occurs in Scripture. 
Exodus chapter 3. Is that significant? I would think so. Right? So the call of Moses, the concept of holiness, and then as you read on through the rest of the books of Moses, you have books like Leviticus. If you don't understand the concept of holiness, you're never going to understand the book of Leviticus, right? right? So we're going, to be, we're going to be covering that, so that's going to be really good. And uh, I'll set this down before I keep playing with it. Okay. Um, yeah, it kind of became, uh, the concept of holiness becomes a defining feature of what we refer to as the law of Moses. Now, sometimes we kind of, kind of look down a little bit on Moses. Uh, we place the emphasis on Moses' reluctance and his excuses and his, his lack of faith and his false humility, saying, oh, oh God, you got the wrong guy. You, know, you need to find somebody else. I can't do that. I can't do that, Lord. You're wrong, because I, I, I can't do that. Who am I to do that? That's what he says. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? I know who Pharaoh is. He's like the leader of the free, not free world. But, but who am I to do that? And, uh, and we say, you know, that Moses, you know, he didn't have much faith. Um, can you picture yourself uh, walking into Egypt and uh, walking up to Pharaoh and engaging him? <laughs> Um, Acts 7, 22 says that Moses was mighty in his words and deeds. And that was before he met God, the burning bush. So think about the, just the, the power of the man, if you will. Uh, we talked about the first 40 years of his life as a prince in Egypt, right? So, uh, so um, let's just acknowledge that what God is asking Moses to do here is a big deal. Okay, now I know we're going back here to chapter 3, and, and we still got to go through 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. But this stuff is important because it's foundational. Let's acknowledge that what God asks Moses to do is not your run-of-the-mill kind of stuff. I would suggest to you that's bigger than most of what we'll get asked to do. Right? I mean, just try to, to appreciate that. I'm not sure if we were in Moses' sandals, or, well, I guess by this time he didn't have his sandals on. But if we were Moses, we'd be going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? Just like he did, because it was a big deal. And I think we need to appreciate the sheer immensity of the situation in order to appreciate what follows the call of Moses, because what follows immediately after the call of Moses is God's revelation of himself to Moses. And to Israel. As Yahweh, the great I am. Remember, the main purpose of God in giving us the scriptures is that God would reveal himself to us through the scriptures so that we can know him, right? Keep, keep reiterating that because it's so important. So as we go through scriptures, we're learning a lot about God, but we are learning more and more about God as, uh, as we go through. So the revelation in, of God to Moses and Israel and to Egypt in these passages, uh, is not only uh, um, identifying him with what has happened prior, previously, when God first uh, speaks to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father uh, Abraham and of your father Isaac and your father Jacob. So God, God makes the connection there and he's building on that connection. But he, go, but he goes beyond that. This revelation of God to Moses is a progression uh, moving us into more and more knowledge and more and more intimacy uh, and knowledge of, of God. 
And uh, so it's amplifying. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And we talked last time about that, um, that Hebrew um, uh, script, of the name of God as, as, as Yahweh, four consonants that we b- believe are pronounced something like, like Yahweh, and that it's uh, several thousand times it's used in the Old Testament. And the idea is one of existence. It means literally, I am that I am, or I am the one who is. And um, <laughs> so it's, it's talking about um, exist, uh, the existence of God, but it's talking about it in an ab- absolute sense. So think about this. You and I can say we exist, right? I hope. I think, therefore, I am, right? You and I can say that we exist, but we cannot say we always existed, correct? Nor can we say that we exist by our own power, correct? But God does. So when God says I am, it means something way beyond what it means when you say it or when I say it, right? And that's important. In fact, it doesn't get much more important than this whole question of identity. But the big issue that follows the issue of identity, remember Moses says, who are you? Um, Beyond the issue of identity is the issue of relationship. Because our identity, are you still listening to me? Our identity is determined by his identity through the relationship that we have with him. Moses' question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God's answer, I will be with you. Who he is determines who we are. And it also determines everything else about us when we come to realize that it's not about us. It's interesting. Moses is reluctant. He's hesitant. He makes a ton of excuses. So much so that God loses his patience, as it were, with him. But God never gives Moses a pep uh, pep talk. Nowhere in this whole passage will you find God saying, Moses, you can do it, man. You just got to believe, Moses. Your problem, Moses, is you just don't believe in yourself. You will not find that in here. And yet, that is often the, the uh, advice that we give to people, isn't it? Moses says, who am I that I can do this? And God says, I will be with you. That's important. The bush is burning, but it is not consumed. Again, this is all foundational stuff. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. A bush on fire in the wilderness was not a strange thing. Probably happened. I'm sure Moses saw bushes burning in the wilderness before. That's not what got his attention. That's not why he went over to look. If you read the passage, it says, I got to go find out what's going on here. This bush that's burning, but not consumed. That was the curious thing. For, uh, for Moses. So what is that? What is, what is a bush that's burning 
but is not consumed. Ah, it could be anything. What's a what's a, a, a tree that's burning that's not consumed? What's a what's a piece of coal that's burning but's not consumed? What's a what's a car burning but not consumed? What it is is um, limitless, endless power, energy. Do you ever get tired? you ever feel used up? These are rhetorical questions, I know. But here's the thing. God never gets tired. He never gets used up. He doesn't even sleep. The Bible says God doesn't sleep. That's why you can go to sleep at night and rest your weary head on your bed and not worry because the Bible says God's awake. He is the source of all life and he is infinite. Think about that. And then think about this. He desires to be there for you without measure. Now you can tune into some, some uh, uh, teaching in some churches, and I don't want to just knock churches, but I'm just going to say it like it is. You'll come away thinking that God is your cosmic cheerleader. He's not. He calls you to worship him. He is the one. He is the I am. And I love that song, that new song this morning. You love that? We come to him empty-handed. What's the other part of that say? Who's, who's up there singing? I hope you remember. Jana, what's the rest part of the chorus say? Is God your all in all this morning? Do you realize that you have nothing without him? That he is everything to you? Because if you do, then you start to get a sense for what Moses, what God's teaching Moses in all of this and what God's calling him to. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, who is sufficient for all these things? And then he answers his own question in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our sufficiency is from God. So then Moses says, then, then who are you? So um, that's a great question. In the Bible, uh, a person's name was their identity. Now, names in the Bible had a lot of significance. Um, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, in our uh, world today, names have a significance of zero. I would say in biblical times, names had the significance of 10. And when it comes to God, that goes to a hundred. Because when God says to, to when God, when Moses says to, to God, "What is your name?" He wants to know who God is. Because God, He knew as the God of His fathers, but that was not going to cut it for Moses. Is He my God? And I think that's part of what God was saying to Moses. I'm not only the God of your fathers. Um, I'm your God. I am that I am. All right. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Reading from Halem Sue. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. 
but he's writing about Genesis 1 and 2. I mentioned this last week. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, the mighty one, or mighty ones, uh, created the heavens and the earth. He's talking here about Genesis chapter 2, okay? And he says, he, meaning, meaning God or the Lord, didn't just speak man into existence, though he absolutely could have as Elohim. Instead, God put his hands into the dirt and formed, shaped, and knitted man together with his fingers. And if that wasn't intimate enough, the Almighty God lowered his head to the ground and met us face to face and breathed into us. Can you imagine Adam's lungs inflating for the first time with the very breath of God giving him life? Do you see how intimate and close this God Yahweh, Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh, the Lord, is described. So you and I are like Moses. We say, who am I? But God's response back to us is that we're missing the point. Because God's answer to the question, who am I, is who he is. Because our identity is determined by his identity through our relationship with him. Now think about this for a moment. Elohim, the mighty one who made us in, in his image. But when God reveals himself to Moses, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and here to Moses as Yahweh, the Lord, he is revealing himself to a broken, fallen, sinful man. Yahweh is the God of grace. Yahweh is the God of, of, uh, who wants to know us intimately, even though, truth be told, we are not only created in the image of God, but we are fallen and often unrecognizably pitiful. And yet, God wants us, you and me, to, to know him. Exodus chapter 4. Let's see what we can do here. Just take a look at some of these other, uh, these other lessons. Exodus chapter 4, <coughs> verse 27 to 31. Here we go. You ready? The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron, that's in chapter 4, by the way, the signs that he gave him, the sign of the staff and his uh, leper's hand. And, and what was the third one? Leper's hand. No, it won't come to me. Yes, that's right. Yeah, water and the blood, yeah. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Isn't that beautiful? Moses and Aaron, you know, finally, I mean, Aaron comes out, he kisses his brother. They go to Egypt, they share with the people, they show the signs that God had given them. All the people believe and they all worship God and it's just like, wow, this is exactly how it's supposed to go, isn't it? And I'm sure right now Israel's feeling 
pretty amazing. You know, they've been suffering. They've been under that bondage. And, and they've been crying out to God for years. Generations even. Generations. And now God is, is obviously amongst them. And he's going to deliver them, right? So he told Moses, I've come down for the specific purpose. To deliver. I've heard the cry of my people. I've come to deliver them. Right? It's a beautiful thing. And so Moses and Aaron, they do it. <laughs> they, they actually do it. They walk into that palace and they walk right up to that old Pharaoh and they say, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. Not only that, he then issues a command that the Israelites from now on will have to make just as many bricks as ever for all that construction, but they'll have to find their own straw from going forward. We're not going to give them the straw anymore. They can find their own straw. And, uh, and uh, the people objected. They go, what? What? And, and, and uh, you know, th- you're not being fair. I mean, this, you're not even being reasonable. And his response to them was, you're just all lazy. That's your problem. You're just, you're just lazy. Get back to work. Every one of you, back to work. You can read all about it in chapter 5. Of course, then what does Moses do? Or uh, what do the people? What do the people do to Moses? I should say. And it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, being called to lead, uh, called by God to lead is not an easy thing. One day it's Hosanna, Hosanna, and the next day it's crucify him, crucify him, right? And the people turn to Moses and they turn on Moses and Aaron and they said, "What have you done? What?" Ah! What have you done? You've made our lives a stench before Pharaoh. You've made our lives, you've taken us from miserable to absolutely unbearable. And Moses, this is all your fault. What does Moses do? He goes back to God. He goes back to God. Of course he goes back to God because Moses is incredulous. He's like, God, you know, I did what you told me to do. I did the right thing. I did it just like you said. And now look. And these are exact words. He says, you haven't delivered the people at all. You, you can call this a crisis of faith, I think. Right here. <clears throat> Maybe you have felt that way. I sure know I have felt that way. And I think I said this last week, um, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. Now that's an old axiom, kind of a, kind of an old proverb. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. But, you know, the reason why these old sayings are there and why they get repeated is because there's a lot of truth to them, right? A lot of the things in our lives... A lot of things that we chafe at, a lot of things that, that, we, that we grieve over, a lot of things that make life hard, 
have to get worse. Sometimes, not all, not all the time, but sometimes, because there is there comes a point, right? There comes a day when God just says, "I'm okay." And some of this has to go back to God's timing again. We talked about that last week. But now, now look now what God's response is. Chapter six, verse one. But the Lord said to Moses, "Now you shall see." And I think we like that word now. Right? Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand I will send them out, and a, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And I mentioned that last week too, the whole idea that wasn't God's plan just that, Moses, that Israel go out, but that they go out with a strong hand. I think the, I think the, uh, the authorized version or whatever is mighty hand. Uh, and there's some places where it refers to uh, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We sing that song called uh, Forever with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's where it comes from, is this, these uh, passages in Exodus here. Of course, it's repeated elsewhere through the Old Testament as well, but this is, this is where those thoughts come from. And so when we sing songs, we're singing songs, not just, you know, nice-sounding lyrics, <laughs> right? Biblical truth, infusing what we sing. Because we're not just singing, we're proclaiming, and we're, we're relishing, and we're worshiping, and we're exalting God, and we're entering into these truths. I hope we are, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Then he says, um, uh, verse 2 through 4 of Exodus 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, implying that that has not happened yet, but it's going to. Now, this can be a little bit confusing because if you, if you go back in the scriptures, back through the book of Genesis, there are different occasions where the patriarchs re referred to God as uh, Lord or, or as Yahweh. Um, and so people have scratched their heads and wondered, you know, what, what, you know, what does God mean here when he says, by my name, um, uh, by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them in verse 3. Uh, but I, I think Victor Hamilton in his book, Handbook on the Pentateuch, he says it may simply be that the Lord's way of saying to Moses that the patriarchs never understood the full significance of God's personal name. And I believe that that's, uh, that's uh, true. Because God is gain. The, the, the revelation of the Lord in Scripture is progressive, right? We believe in progressive revelation. God is revealing more and more about himself, right? Um, and, and the other thing here is, is that how God defines himself. <clears throat> um, it's not us naming him. It's him saying, this is my name. It's not us uh, uh, ascribing anything to God. Rather, it's God revealing himself to us, and I think when we consider that the, there's a biblical pattern where uh, names reveal character and character reveals actions, then we can have some confidence that um, uh, the idea here is that God's going to show His nature and character in ways that will take the revelation of God to another level. Um, and then, and then, and, to, and speaking to that point, okay, God is prepared to take the revelation of Himself uh, to another level. 
um, what you see in verses 6 through 8, Exodus 6, 6 through 8. If you look through there, and uh, the, I think we do have that. Um, there's seven, it, it begins with, I am the Lord. This is Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Begins with a statement, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh. And then there are seven I will statements. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you from my people, I will be your God, I will bring you into the land, and I will give it to you for a possession. And then it ends with, I am the Lord, Yahweh. You compare that to Genesis 12, back in Genesis 12, God says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, uh, so that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see kind of a comparison there? It's not a contrast, it's a comparison. But the, 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 the central uh, words there are the words, I will. Over and over again, I will. This is God making declarative statements, absolute statements of what he is going to do. These are the things that I am going to do, God says. To Abraham in Genesis 12, and here uh, to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6. So there's an intrinsic connection here between who God is and what God does. And I don't think we want to miss this because I think it's pretty close to the main point uh, that God is making here in these passages. I don't think we would be too far off the mark if we would say the one true God is the one who shows up. And God is about to show up in a really big, big way. Exodus 7, 14 to 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus saith the Lord, or therefore, the Lord says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember what Pharaoh said when God, Moses and Aaron first went before Pharaoh? He says, I don't know the Lord. And I'm not going to let your people go. And God says, by this you shall know, verse 17 of Exodus chapter 7, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from, uh, from the Nile, from the river. This is the first of ten plagues. I hope you read through, or, or you will read through, one or the other, and read all, about all ten plagues. We're obviously not going to talk about ten, all ten plagues today. It's not realistic. Uh, but I want to I want to just uh, take a moment uh, a moment or two and just get you think about the staff uh, because this the, this here staff that it talks about and it keeps coming up again and again and again and again is the staff that Moses had. Um, where did he get it? Pardon? I know we're not told where he got the staff. Okay, but where 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 do shepherds get staffs? 
either founded or made it. I, I'm probably a combination of both. I mean, if you were a shepherd and you were leading sheep, and I mean, you'd be looking for a staff. You'd be looking for something, some kind of a of a tool that you could use to direct the sheep and protect the sheep and whatnot. And and uh, uh, so the staff for the shepherd was like the Swiss Army knife of the Old Testament. They used it for everything. It was the basically the only tool they had. It was it was kind of everything in terms of them getting anything done or accomplishing anything or right? They used that staff. Now just think with through this a little bit with me. God here's, here's Moses out in the Sinai Desert, standing there looking at a burning bush, and God says, Take off your sandals. And so he does, and, and he's, you know, who are you? What's your name? And then, and then, and then he says, uh, you see that staff in your hand when you throw it down? And uh, Moses threw the staff down. It turned into a serpent. And God said, now reach it and grab it. And when he did, it turned back into the staff again. And what's that all about? Yeah, the head. <laughs> yeah, not a good idea to grab a, a, a serpent in the wilderness by the head, right? Um, but when he took it by the tail, it turned back into the staff. And I don't want—I don't want to get too creative on this. You know, I'm sure there's all kinds of fanciful interpretations, and I don't want to give it more significance than what it than what it deserves biblically. But I think it's significant because it was like I said, it was the only tool he had for leading sheep or leading <laughs> anybody else, as far as that goes. Uh, and I—I I think it's significant that God told him to throw it down. And then when he picked it up again, uh, it was it was different. And I want you to think about all of your abilities and all of your accomplishments and all your competencies and all your capacities and all the things that you think make you sufficient for the tasks that you may feel called to do. And then I want you to think about just throwing it all down and letting God change it by his power. And then picking it back up again, understanding that it's not about your abilities, your capacities, or anything else. But it's about that relationship that you have, that covenant relationship you have with God, who is your all in all. Because you might get tired, and you might be weary, and you're going to come up short. Yes, you are. Absolutely. Count on it. But God never comes up, on, comes up short. I think there's some significance to that there. And again, I don't want to overstate it, but... so. Anyways, this is the first of the ten, ten plagues, right? The plague uh, on the Nile, turning the water to blood. <laughs> we can talk about whether, you know, was it real blood or was the color of blood. It really doesn't even matter. It just, it stunk. <laughs> That's probably enough. Uh, it ruined the, the water. You couldn't drink it. You wouldn't want to bathe in it. Like, so what good is water if you can't drink it or feed it to your animals or, or, or water your animals or, or bathe? It's no good at all. And and it was, uh, it was a plague. It was the first plague. You say, wow, that's really, really bad. Yeah, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. God's just getting started here, right? So what are, what are these plagues? They're, they're judgments. They are, uh, 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 think about this, what's the difference between a plague and a curse? Because God said, those who bless me, I will bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That's something to think about. They are blows or they are strikes in a battle. Because this is set out as a contest, right? And they're called signs and wonders as well. And this 
different Bible scholars have pointed out, uh, each of these plagues were directed uh, towards uh, things in Egypt that would be identified with the different gods of Egypt. Do you know how many gods that there were that were uh, recognized in the land of Egypt in the days of Moses? They say they've uh, identified over 2,000. And they all had names. We're familiar with some of them because we watch them on television, like Ra, the sun god, right? Uh, or Osiris and others like that that we're maybe a little bit more familiar, familiar with. But there were over 2,000 deities in the Egyptian uh, pantheon. And, uh, and, of course, there was... The Nile, the Nile River. Well, they had, they had gods that were uh, that were specifically, and I can't remember what I had read. Was in, in the name of the god that <coughs> was the god um, of the Nile, but it was really important, right? The Nile River was oof, was a kind of life for Egypt, right? So we need to keep you know keep that god happy, right? Anyways, uh, let me see here. Ten plagues, uh, the number ten is the number of completeness in the Bible. That's why there's ten commandments coming up. We're going to get there someday. And, uh, but it just kind of goes like this. God and Moses near and go in to Pharaoh. He says, you let my people go. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let your people go. God says, okay, I'm a, uh, Moses said, I'm gonna send, God's going to send another plague. So God would send another plague. And uh, Pharaoh, Moses was going to Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh would say, okay, I, okay, 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 uh, you can go. Uh, maybe a little ways, and uh, and but please stop the plague. And so Moses would pray, and God would stop the plague. And then Pharaoh would change his mind and say, "No, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to let the people go." And it would go again, and it would go again. And every time it escalated and got uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. And it all happened according to Exodus 8:22, so that the Lord, that Egypt would know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Let's just uh, fast forward a little bit. Ten plagues. Uh, water to blood, frogs, gnats, wild animals, disease, livestock, boils. Can you tell it's escalating? When you get to the boils part, okay. All right. Hail, destroy all the crops. Lightning. Who's, who's not afraid of? Of, of a lightning bolt. Locusts, um, destroy all the crops again. Uh, darkness, I know you might not be afraid of the dark, but if it got dark for three days, like it did here, and, and there was no light for three days, you would be scared, let me tell you. All right, just saying. Okay, and then finally, finally, the last, the tenth plague. All of the plagues up to this point were reversed. You know, when Moses would say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'll let the people go. Uh, Moses would pray and, you know, the, the water would clear up or the flies would go away or, you know, the animals would get better, whatever. Not this time. Plague number 10, and, and we know it um, as the Passover. And um, let's just read a little bit of that. I know we're, we're pretty much out of time, but. Uh, I'm almost out of notes here too. Uh, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. You are witnessing right now in Scripture the formation of the nation of Israel. Okay? They've been a, they've been a, 
uh, a people in the sense that, they, that you have the patriarchs, and then you have the tribes of Jacob. But now God is, is, is about to create an entire nation out of these people. And it shall be the first month of the year for you. Uh, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then the nearest neighbor uh, shall take according to the number of persons. So it's personal, every person, okay? Um, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep, or uh, you may take it from the sheep, or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. All done in unison, all right? Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses, that's the overtop piece, in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And there's significance to that, and we may pick up on that um, in weeks ahead. Um, but the main idea is that they're, they're going to go quick. They're, gonna, it's gonna be, they're not going to have time to let the bread even rise. Okay? That's the main idea. Verse 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. Did you see that? On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, Yahweh. And then he says, verse 13 of Exodus 12, the blood shall be a sign for you. interesting is a sign for you is also a sign for the death angel this blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see when I see the blood I will pass over you you sing that song that's an old hymn when I see the blood I will pass I will pass over you that's where it comes from right here and of course um, in the moments that I will keep you um, farther this morning. I hope you will understand and appreciate as we study these Old Testament accounts, you will see the foundations forming for so much of what happens in the New Testament. Remember John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember when Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room? Uh, what did they gather for, does it say? To celebrate the Passover. What's that? That's what, this, is, this is it right here. And God told them they, to celebrate it. They were commanded to celebrate it. Every single year for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation, they celebrated this deliverance here. The deliverance out of Egypt, deliverance out of oppression and slavery, and it was deliverance through the judgments of God 
but they were spared from that judgment because of the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the one who took their place, the one who died in their place. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Did I read this? Did we read this part? Yeah, he said, the passage we just read, he said, I'm going to do this, right? Now it says, yeah, at midnight. You can't get much more solemn a mood than this, eh? This is like, can you imagine? Just imagine. You know, sometimes we struggle to project ourselves back into Scripture and, and understand that we're talking about real people here and real events. And we read it kind of matter-of-factly, somewhat clinical, intellectual, cerebral. Imagine. Just try to imagine. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. The Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Yeah. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Imagine that. I like what the Gospel Project curriculum says. It says that night every household either had a dead son or a dead lamb. One or the other. Think about that. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up. Owed from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then he, and then he says, and bless me also. I almost wish that that was real, genuine repentance, because Pharaoh had many opportunities to genuinely repent. And as near as we know, as we read on, he never did genuinely repent. Um, but I want to close this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want you to think about the Passover. And I want you to think about the cross of Jesus. Because the Bible says that that lamb was really a picture of a much greater deliverance. Just like Moses was a picture of a much greater prophet. That lamb, blood was shed, whose life was given, so that when the death angel passed over your house that night and saw that blood that you applied in faith to the doorposts of your house, was a picture of of God looking down at his son on Calvary where he hung and shed his blood so that you could have eternal life and not perish for all eternity. When we talk about scripture and how scripture reveals God to us and how God reveals himself to us in scripture, this God, Yahweh, is a God who loves us so much that he is willing to pay the price for us. He is willing to, to it wants to, uh, us to know him even though we're sinful and fallen. And the way he has done that, you know, it wasn't like God was one way with the Egyptians and one other way with the Jews because the Jews were sinners too. 
They were just as guilty of idolatry as the Egyptians. Do you understand this? It wasn't like God, you know, was being a judge and then turned to Israel and became their savior. The Bible says in James, in him there is no shadow of turning. The only difference is when you seek shelter in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, it says in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm two. Have you done that? If you were to die today and stand before God, would you stand there in your sin and the guilt of your sin? Or would you stand there with your life covered? We're going to be talking about the word atonement. It's going to come up again and again and again. And that word atonement means covering. Would you stand there with your life covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for you personally? personally for you, made by a personal God who wants you to know him. He wants you to know him as your all in all. He wants you to know him as your savior, the one who died for you. Have you done that? Have you asked him to be your savior? The most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have today to gather in your name and to sing your praises and to think about what you have to say to us in your word. And together, Lord, today we thank you for Jesus, precious, precious Lamb of God who gave his life, his very life's blood as a covering for our sin. We thank you for these pictures in the Old Testament. Lord, right now, in these moments, as we prepare to leave this place, I ask, Lord, for those who may be here this morning who have not made that choice. And I pray, Lord, that you would just impress upon their heart right now by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, please, please speak and please convict of sin, and please, Lord, uh, show your Son as Savior to those who are here who do not know you, Lord. If you're here this morning and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, will you just pray with me? It's really, really uh, quite simple. Maybe it's not easy, but it's simple. Will you just pray and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know you made me in your image, but I have fallen so far short of that. I thank you, Lord, that you have done something about that, that you've come down to save your people, and you died. You shed your blood for me. I thank you, Lord, that you shed your blood for me, that you died for me so that I might live and have the gift of eternal life. And so, Lord, I repent of my sin. I confess my sin. I turn to you, and I ask that you would. I don't understand it all, but I, I know enough to ask, Lord, because you tell me to ask. So I'm asking, Lord, would you please forgive me my sin, and please give me eternal life. I would praise you all my days. Lord, I thank you for this group of people, and I pray you bless our day. I pray you bless our week. Lord, that we might be a people who would really engage this fallen world with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.